And I've got my three-year-old in my lap and I'm like trying to control myself, but I'm just raging. And my wife was like, do you need to stop playing that game right now? All right, welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Stauffer. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? I'm Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. So we got a lot of plans uh, ready for us today, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, I have been slowly blogging through all the new features that come in in um, Laravel 5.2, and the, the thing that people have been requesting me to talk about most is the, the multiple authentication systems, how we're doing APIs, and it's the token aspect, the authentication, also the rate limiting. And I actually put a blog post out about that. We'll link it in the show notes, but I feel like people are still asking to learn more about it. And I think that there's two pieces that I think are most interesting to folks when we're talking about the multiple auth situation. One of them is the fact that we now have the concept of multiple auths. Um, and then the second one is this in, this introduction of the token auth situation and kind of what's going on there. Okay, so to understand the multiple auth situation, there's a lot of kind of background I feel like you have to have for it all to make sense. And so right now we have Laravel and Lumen, right? And uh, Lumen is supposed to be for kind of these stateless APIs and Laravel is more for your full fleshed out app. And with Laravel, um, with its authentication, in the past you could only have one authentication driver and that was typically handled by sessions, right? With cookies and, and stuff like that. And that's how people typically log into normal web apps through your login form. There's a session cookie and that's how the web app remembers who you are when you come back. And that's called, you know, like stateful because you're maintaining state on the server and in the, and in the cookie itself. So it can be really convenient to be able to have multiple auth setups for one app in one code base because if you want to have your typical login form session-based authentication, you might also want to serve like a API out of the same code base, out of the same full Laravel app. And APIs authenticate a lot differently than typical web apps. So typically with an API, you pass some kind of token. Like if you've ever interacted with GitHub's API, you have to pass an access token to get information about repositories you own or stuff like that. So doing that within one application um, was possible before all this multi-auth stuff, but it just wasn't as explicit and clear on how to set it up. So basically multiple auth and token authentication of Laravel 5.2 is basically laying the groundwork for the future. It's not fully fleshed out in terms of features. It's just kind of the skeleton for what um, the direction things are heading in terms of app development. And so if we're looking to the future, like when I was thinking about this multiple auth setup, I'm looking, you know, years into the future, a couple of years into the future, APIs are going to be more popular. People are using JSON APIs more and more. We have JSON web tokens getting more popular. You know, the web is just revolves around APIs um, a lot of the time. And basically to like accommodate the trends in the future. I always try to kind of lay the groundwork for things that I think are coming. And this was sort of laying the groundwork because I know we're going to have a bigger emphasis on APIs in the future uh, with Laravel. And this was just a feature that needed to be in place to make that possible in the future was being able to have multiple ways of authenticating people in a single app really easily. So the, the current token auth driver, well, let me back up. There's two drivers in Laravel 5.2. There's the, um, what's it called? Is it just called web or session? 
and then there's tokens. So web is is basically your typical login form, cookie-based session type stuff. And token is the very most basic form of API authenticator you could write. Take this access token from the query stringer for the header and compare it against this um, column in the user's database. So every, every user would have one API token. Now that's just the most very basic setup. Like on more robust apps, you would probably want, uh, you know, you can issue multiple tokens per user or like in an OAuth 2 setup with different scopes and stuff. But again, this was just laying the groundwork and the most very basic implementation we could have to get started. And then in future versions like Laravel 5.3, I think you'll see more robust features added, um, you know, the ability for multiple tokens per user, stuff like that to kind of uh, flesh it out. But this was just the the bare bone skeleton, you know, to kind of get the features in place and the structure in place to move forward. And it wasn't so much, um, you know, feature complete per se, as it was just kind of a scaffolding for the future. Yeah. And if you uh, if you take a look at my blog post, I kind of break down some of the differentiations between some of the terms, but just a high level intro here. A guard in Laravel 5.2 is kind of like it's like a piece of um, the components that you need to have an entire auth system. And is is it right to say that that right now is just a driver and a provider, Taylor? Yeah, you have a, a driver, um, which can be web or token, and then a provider, which is just like a, a user provider, which we always had that that term user provider interface in Laravel 5.1. You may not have seen it if you haven't like extended the auth system before, but basically there's two providers out of the box, either just the Fluent Query Builder database objects, or you can use Eloquent. And of course, probably 99% of people are just using the default Eloquent user provider because they're using Eloquent models for their users. But in theory, if you had like a model MongoDB uh, database, you could have a Mongo user provider that returns Mongo stuff. Um, but yeah, you combine either the web or token, and then you combine a source from where to get your user information, and that kind of makes up your auth system. So you can have an, a token-based uh, guard with a MongoDB user provider and kind of combine those two into one, one thing. Yeah, and each of those guards gets a shortcut. So the, the, the guards out of the box are web and API. Um, and like Taylor was describing, the web guard is a combination of the session driver and the user's provider. And the API guard is a combination of the token driver and the user's provider. But you can make up your own guards. So you could say, well, what if I have two systems, two pieces of my system from two entirely different user providers that they're both session? Well, you can just say, you know, web admin and web whatever else. You make new guards, and this is all in config slash auth.php. You can make multiple guards. Um, you can set up which are your defaults going to be. And then anytime you're using any of the auth f- uh, functionality or facades, you can scope which particular guard you're working with. And again, take a look at my blog post, take a look at the docs, I'll tell you a lot more about that. But basically, it's just it's a higher level citizen, the concept of having multiple authentication systems in the app at one time. Yeah, and there's a really cool auth feature that I, I see now needs to be documented. But if you use Lumen, you might have seen it where you can say auth via request and pass it a closure that receives the current HTTP request. And then all you have to do is return a user so that you can actually implement a guard without defining any extra interfaces or classes or anything. So uh, you say auth of your request, and then maybe you check some header or whatever, and then you return a user from that closure, and that's your entire auth system, like in one thing. It can be three or four lines of code. Wow, that's really cool. So that's a really handy feature. Um, so that that's really exciting. I think I'm going to write that up. I, I put out on Twitter, so if anybody doesn't follow me on Twitter, I'd love to know if there's any other pieces of Laravel 5.2 you'd like to see some some documentation about or you'd like to see a blog post written about. So um, hit me up on Twitter if you want that. I think the, the via request, I'll have to look that up and, and uh, write something up about that. 
Um, so the next thing on our plans is to talk about uh, the plans for Laracon US. Uh, Taylor, I know you've been spending a lot of time focusing on this and lining speakers up, and you've announced a few already. So can you kind of give your spiel for where we are right now? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm really happy with the speaker lineup. I think it's going to be a really good year. Of course, we have some big names um, in development coming. Uh, Zeev, uh, co kind of architect, a maintainer of PHP, who's, you know, worked on the PHP core for many years. Um, we also have Evan uh, Yu, who's the creator of Vue.js. Um, and of course, uh, some of our Laravel friends, uh, Adam Wathen, um, Matt Machuga, who's been around Laravel for a long time. So lots of like, I've tried to kind of center around people that love Laravel and that really like the whole ecosystem and bringing those people in, people that have been around the community a while, and yeah, so I think it's going to be a great, um, a great conference. Who, what other speakers do we have? We have Amanda Folson, who's been using uh, Lumen a lot, and she's going to talk about Lumen. Um, I know I'm forgetting people. Oh, Chris Fidal uh, from Servers for Hackers, who's been, a, of course, a longtime member of the Laravel community as well. So yeah, it's good. the speaker lineup is looking really good, and I, I'm hopeful that I'll have another really big speaker announcement uh, this week as well. So that would be really sweet if that all came through. What will Jack McDade be talking about? Oh, yeah. Jack McDade, who designed every single Laravel uh, website, he's going to talk about uh, actually branding and design. Um, I think it, this could change, but I think his preliminary talk idea is basically um, 10 things you can do to improve your branding and design right now. Basically, you know, a very practical Amen. branding UX type of talk. That's super excited. I'm just looking at the site and remembering how much I love that venue and that little coffee shop that's just down the way from the venue. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, just today we announced um, the group discounts this morning. Um, five pack group discounts get $100 off per ticket um, and 10 pack discounts get $150 off per ticket. So pretty deep discounts if you're bringing whole teams, which p- p- there are multiple companies, you know, that send seven or eight people per uh, company. So you know, give a little break there. Well, we we sent the whole company last year. It was basically a second on-site for the developers. So that was a totally, totally valuable time and both for them to get together, but also for them to get to know the Laravel community. So we'll, we'll definitely be taking advantage of that. Cool. Um, so the next thing on the plate, um, before we jump into more kind of status updates, I wanted to talk about code for a little bit. So um, we have had some conversations on the, the, the air about Vue.js. We've talked about single page apps and about front end work. And we've talked about uh, PJX and TurboLinks just a little bit before. But I had, I had the sense that there's, this, there's a pitch for PJX. I think there's a way for PJX to click into people's heads and see kind of what's the value of it that hasn't happened. And a lot of times when people talk about single page apps on Twitter, there's a few folks in the Laravel community who are just like, well, why aren't y'all thinking about PJAX? So Jeffrey, I just wanted to hear the, the elevator pitch for you from PJAX. What is it about PJAX? What's compelling? Give us like the, the intro level, like what are you doing with PJAX and why is it simple and what's good about it? Okay. Um, <clears throat> here's what I would say. If, if anyone listening to this goes to laracast.com slash lessons, uh, you'll see like a little grid that basically lists a paginated sequence of all the content on the site. Um, and if you click through all of the filters there, you'll see that the uh, like if you click on the beginner filter, it will automatically update on the right side to show only the beginner uh, lessons. That's actually using PJAX. That's not using uh, anything else, just simple PJAX. So what PJAX is, uh, you might be familiar with TurboLinks in the, in the Rails world. Kind of the same thing. Uh, basically, what it is is you're loading HTML from the server. So you're still using AJAX, but um, it'll feel just a little more automatic and natural to you. So if you think of kind of the traditional way, let's say you want to fetch like tweets or something, 
you would have to like get the user's username, then make an AJAX request to the server. The server would do something. It would then return JSON, and then you filter through the the data, the JSON response, and then you would build up a template, and then you would plop that into uh, your page. With PJAX, it's it's a little bit more natural. So PJAX, you just use a real permalink. You're making requests to the server. You're getting real HTML in return. And then you just put that into the DOM, and that's it. And what's cool is this happens automatic, so you don't really have to do anything. You just add, like, a custom attribute, and you're done. So what's cool is, like, let's say, um, okay, in the example of the Laracast lessons where you click on one of those filters, if there was no JavaScript enabled and you clicked on that, it's it's just a real hyperlink. So it would just refresh the page, and you would see the the appropriate content. So that's what's nice about PJAX is you're not you're not hijacking anything. You're not using fake URLs. It's real links. It's real URLs. The only difference is when you add the PJAX library, it intercepts that. It finds a URL. It makes a request to the server. The server picks up on the fact that you're doing a PJAX request. And it goes, oh, they want PJAX. I'm just going to return to them this subset of the response. So rather than the HTML tag and the body tag, I'm just going to give them the information between like the container tag. So your JavaScript receives that, puts it into the DOM and you're done. It's it's a lot more um I don't know, seamless in many ways. So now are you just using the the defunct jQuery PJAX library? Is that what you're using to do PJAX? Yeah, I mean PJAX is a jQuery library. So, yeah. I had always thought that PJAX was a concept and then that library just happened to be the one that was named after it. Is that not true? Is PJAX just the name of the library and that's it? Uh, I, I don't know, honestly. Uh, it might be a concept. I mean, what's funny is it, it's there's nothing that special going on. It, it's kind yeah. of, we were joking about this a, a week ago. It's like, it's really just a term for making a request to the server, getting HTML and putting it in the DOM. This is what we were doing like back in 2004. Right. Uh, but it does a couple other things. Like it will update the URL dynamically. What do you need to do on the Laravel side to get Laravel to work with PJAX? Do you have to do anything special or? Yes, you need one, you need a middleware. And uh, I've already covered this on Laracast. We can we can add a, um, a little middleware source code to the show notes that people can cool. review. And I linked the Laracast lesson in the show notes. Yeah, okay. Um, basically, the middleware just picks up on the fact that you're using PJAX. It, I think it looks at a header, and it's like, okay, you want PJAX, so in that case, I'm not going to return all of the HTML to you. I'm just going to return uh, like this one div worth of HTML, because that's all you care about. And that's the advantage to PJAX, is when you click on the link, you don't have to do a full-page refresh. You don't have to re-download all of the assets and all of the scripts and all the style sheets. And that's what's really slow. So instead... Uh, the page doesn't reload at all, and you just update one segment of of the DOM. How are you defining to PJAX what the um that thing is? Is it is it a part of the data attribute that it's like the uh, you know div with the ID of body or something like that? Or, or? Um, yes, yes, okay. exactly. Well, you can tell PJAX like I, I believe the way it works with TurboLinks is you enable it, and every single link just becomes kind of a, a Turbo Link. That's why they call it Turbo Links. Uh, with PJAX, you can do that if you want, or you can say. Any anchor tag that has this this attribute, like data PJAX in the anchor tag, anything that has that should be activated. Otherwise, just default to um, the regular behavior for a link. What I what I'm curious about with this is because I mean, single page apps and you know using you know RESTful you know APIs to serve your your Vue.js whatever is, is clearly valuable and has a lot of value. But it seems to me like if you have a PJAX middleware, you have the PJAX library. You basically get the easy win of the feeling of, you know, the fast refresh and all that stuff 
with basic it's not a hundred percent dropping, but it's basically just dropping a middleware, dropping a jQuery library, and then add a couple data data attributes. It seems extremely, extremely simple to implement once you have that code up and running. Am I misunderstanding? Is it really just super easy to get basically like faster reloads on page for certain things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the big appeals, especially if you don't have much familiar familiarity with uh, JavaScript. This is a good way to really speed up your sites. Um, there's even other libraries that take it a step further where, like, you know, when you when you hover over a link on some page, there's a small bit of time before you click on it. So you hover over it and then maybe 400 milliseconds later, you click on it. What this will do is, PJAX doesn't do this, but another library does. It picks up on the fact that you're hovering over it and it starts fetching the data behind the link. So like that, that way you get like a half second increase because it knows you're going to click on it. You just haven't done it yet. So it just starts fetching everything you need. So yeah, there, there's a lot of cool ideas there. That's very cool. So yeah, I think that the reason I want to say this is because I feel like because people don't talk about it so much, I feel like a lot of people look at PJAX as being like the yet another JavaScript thing to learn. And it really seems to me like it's if you don't feel like you have a handle on Vue.js or other single page app frameworks, this might be like a you know gateway drug kind of thing. Like you're not writing any different Laravel code. You're not writing complex JavaScript. You're basically just adding a little convenience layer on top of your pre-existing normal apps that would work just fine without JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks, Jeffrey. Um, Taylor, can we get an update on Spark? You've been clearly putting a lot of work into it. We get little bits and snippets here about what you're doing. And it's obvious that it's... I don't want to say... It seems to me like the vision has gotten bigger since the original plan. It felt like in this summer, we heard about it at Laracon, and it felt like it was just a couple weeks out. And I know you you mentioned a ground up rewrite, and also you mentioned that there's a lot of new features. Could you give us kind of the the where is it right now, and what what are you working on, and what motivated the what's happened in the last you know four five six months? So yeah, I did uh, do a ground up rewrite a month or two ago, and I think it's looking really good. It is bigger, um, a bigger vision than than what it was at Laracon. Um, there's kind of a back end interface where you can impersonate other users. You can see what your most popular subscription plans are, what your you know basic monthly revenue and yearly revenue is looking like. Um, you can make app wide announcements that put you know, a little notification bubble up in the nav bar and, and make product announcements or or announcement or notifications to users as well, like if they're invited to a specific team or whatever. So yeah, it's a lot more fleshed out than it was. Um, and surprisingly, the code is actually simpler than it was um, before, um, thanks to kind of rewriting it and streamlining a bunch of stuff that like I kind of discovered as I was writing it. And a lot of kind of the that additional features are stuff that I wish I would have done on like Forge, on Envoy. So it's stuff that I know like this is useful stuff. I, I would have wanted this had I been building Forge or Envoy right now. And so I'm sort of using those experiences to drive Spark because I've learned all the things that are easy to neglect, all the things that are a pain in the rear to implement um, and that just get kind of put off and kicked down the road if you're building an app as like a side project. Um, so, and it's all the stuff that you don't want to write, you know, all the boring stuff you don't really feel like doing. So yeah, that's kind of, um, where some of the additional features have come from as I look at Forge and Envoyer and think about future things I might want to build. What are the things I know I'm going to need to start this project? What I like is, is some of the stuff you've showed to us kind of behind the scenes. There are the, uh, there's, there are the sorts of things that are way too easy to, uh, like you said, skip over, especially if like you're the only one maintaining it. 
you think like, oh, I can just go to stripe.com and, and do it directly there. So I'm going to skip over this or I'm not going to bother building like a dashboard for this thing because I can just do that, you know, in SQL Pro. So it's nice that you're actually taking the time to, to implement this stuff officially so we never have to do it again. Yeah, it should be really nice. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of always in a shippable state. So like, it's not a question of like, is it done or not done or what needs to be fixed? Because it actually is in sort of a complete state where someone could use it. But it's just a matter of kind of deciding at what point do I want to say like, this is version one. And these are the features that are going to be in it because there are so many things you can do. And it sort of has to be, I have to be careful not to scope creep it too much because it already has kind of grown a little bit. But yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of where it's at. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm working on it, you know, most of my days, the majority of my time is spent on Spark. Uh, We recently moved into a new place. So uh, last week was a little messed up, but yeah, I spent basically all day on Spark now for the past month or two. Um, I wanted to talk uh, editors real quick for a second. So I'd mentioned previously how I was switching over to, to Vim for a while. And the problem is, since I've switched, I've been almost writing writing almost no code. Just because of the way the business works out at the beginning of the year, I've been doing almost biz dev, all biz dev. I've gotten, to be able, I've gotten to get back into code just a little bit. I'm getting to Vim and learning these things. And I'm like, oh, this is going well. And Taylor's laughing right now because all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Sublime, Sublime is back, guy baby. comes from the dead. <laughs> Sublime <laughs> is not bad, guys. Hey, it's back. I mean, there's been two or three releases. And, and here, first, I want to say this. I don't think it's a coincidence that we started talking about Sublime being dead. Didn't and we then talk all about of a sudden, that? it's back. Didn't we talk about that? We talked about yes. it and watched this guy comes back like a week it later. He was back a week later. He's, he's, this got to him somehow. Somebody emailed him and said, <laughs> hey, everyone thinks you're dead or living on an island with millions. Yeah. But um, I think we are responsible for this. So yeah. even though I have switched over to Vim, <laughs> I'm also going to take credit for bringing Sublime back in the process. You're welcome, development yeah. world. You all can so thank us. You guys yep. are welcome. You know what's what's funny to me is like he comes back and he like doesn't even acknowledge that like he's been I missing know. for like seven months. <laughs> it, he comes back and his first post is on some like obscure UTF-8 bug and he's like, oh yeah, yep. here's a new release. And that's it. Like there's no mention of, <laughs> oh yeah, I've been... Uh, you know, chilling in a castle in Germany for the last seven months or whatever. I try not to be too hard on him because like, what if he's been gone for some like serious reason and like he doesn't feel comfortable talking about it and then we all feel like total D-bags for for like really giving him a hard time. But I just find it interesting that he doesn't even mention it at all. Yeah, as if it weren't even a thing. Um, I, I see, Jeffrey, you're starting to cover Vim a little bit in Laircast. I'm excited to watch the those because I feel like so the the one piece of advice I appreciate the most that I got from you is it, when something bothers you, stop and fix it. I think in the mm-hmm. past, I've always with him, I'd be like, oh, it bothers me. So I'm going to have to like, you know, just p- power through it. So I think that I, I'm excited to kind of push through some of those things. But um, in general, I'm finding that Vim, especially Mac Vim, is able to kind of be pretty fast. It's it's you you can get pretty snappy with with the conveniences Mac Vim gives gives you with kind of like mouse interactions and stuff like that. But I did find myself uh, needing to do something really fast for a screencast, and I just popped up in Sublime Text and just started <gasps> hacking. I was like, "Oh no!" no. Again. <laughs> so I'm just going to say it's the influence of him coming back. Coming back, I just kind of like sent some Sublime Text vibes Matt, my way, and it no. threw off my threw off my game. It's okay. I closed it. I closed it as soon as I realized. <laughs> oh, no, geez. you know what? Vim is great. I, I'm I'm actually excited doing this series because it's exactly what I would have wanted a very long time ago. Nobody does a great job of explaining it, and you're just inundated with keyboard shortcuts. Even when I'm doing these videos, I find myself thinking, like, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Where I'm like, (laughs) if you hit lowercase w, it does this. But if you do uppercase w, it's slightly different. 
And the same thing is true for every single key on the keyboard. Yeah, I, I sometimes feel like it's it's just absurd. It's stupid. But then I also know how much faster I am yeah. once you learn it. So I don't know. It, it's a give or take type thing. Do you guys know who um, Brett Terpstra is? He, um, he, I think he made Marked and Notational Velocity Alt. Um, but he, uh, he's this kind of like longtime Mac developer. And I was listening to a ThoughtBot podcast with him from ages ago in 2012, I think. And he was talking about the fact that he has so many keyboard shortcuts and so many things that he actually he mapped caps lock. And I think it was to control option command shift. And that's what caps lock does because he said nobody ever has shortcuts that use that key combination because you can't actually do it or something like that. And so basically he now holds caps lock and he has this entire keyboard worth of like magic shortcuts that he can come up with because he's like nobody's ever going to do it. So he he just knows caps lock A does this caps lock B and then he also uses better touch tool and some other things so he can do caps lock and there's a little bit of delay. So if you do caps lock like F1A it's this and F1B it's this other thing and F1's you know it's like this is whole but for his Mac and I'm like that is unbelievable. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. You guys should take a listen to how he does it and he talks about he, he he makes a cheat sheet of all of his keyboard shortcuts that he can pull up with yet another caps lock shortcut to remind him how to do something. <laughs> I think he may be a Vim user, actually. It j- just seems be. so Vimmy to me when he was talking about that. It seems very Vimmy. Because yeah. otherwise, like if you just try to map something like Control F, you might be okay, or that might already map to something, in yeah. which case you're going to break things. Yeah. So it's actually a really smart idea. He yeah. basically makes sure that he never overlaps with any other uh, mapping. All right. So one last thing before we go. Mario Kart. Mario Kart. So the three of us have been playing... What's the name of the game? Is it Wii U Mario, Mario Kart? Kart Mario 8. Kart 8. Okay. And it is... It is First of all, it's brilliant. I've So I went back and played um, the Super NES Mario Kart a couple weeks ago because I got an Apple TV for Christmas and I played the, the, the ROM of it. It is horrible. <laughs> you can't go back. It is... It, like, I love classic games. I go back and play the Super Marios and the Sonics all the time. Mario Kart did not age well at all. And the N64 Mario Kart's good, right? Like, but but I feel like Mario Kart 8 maybe is one of the biggest improvements of like modern gaming on a classic game franchise that I've ever seen. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. No, I, I totally. You you genuinely can't go back. It's those things are. All, it's weird. It's sad. It's like it's, they're best left in the past. Even like uh, Taylor, you were telling Matt to check out Pilot Wings. Notice you never heard about Pilot Wings <laughs> after that night again because it's it's bad, man. Yeah. If you go back, it's like wow. How did I would play that game for hours and hours yeah. and I can't get through five minutes of it now. I'm wondering if it's anything that had faux 3D back then didn't age well because like Super Mar- uh, Mario Kart had faux 3D and it's just so flat. Pilot Wings was faux 3D and it's so flat. But anything that was a side scroller then it's still a good side scroller now, right? People are still putting out side scrollers now. So I think maybe side scrollers just age better than attempted so 3D. much better yeah like link to the past ages great almost better than like Nintendo like 64 games actually uh, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, other games like you were saying that in Mario Kart for Super Nintendo, the coins are in the road. Yes, they're not hovering <laughs> over. They're, they're like painted onto the, the road. road. <laughs> so, so we've been playing just a little bit together, and Jeffrey kind of came in as like the the Mario Kart master. Taylor and I tried to catch up, and Taylor caught up, caught up a lot faster. So I don't know. Do, do we need to throw down some challenges on the air? Do we need to give some tips? What do we? What can we do that that's good here? Do you guys want me to do like a master class with you? Or Dude, anything. You the know main what? problem is Taylor doesn't power slide enough. <laughs> so I, everyone listening, I'm trying to work with him on power sliding, but he doesn't do it. So you know what I found is that monster truck wheels. I know you guys have your fancy slick wheels. I haven't earned those yet, but the monster truck wheels makes it so that you can s- slip into a skid by just turning. 
because most of them you have to like turn at a certain amount of acceleration and wiggle a little bit with the monster truck wheels wheels you're just basically like turning you're skidding the moment you're turning so i don't know if there is as fast or something my son just loves watching the monster i let him build my cart every time i play so he just wants to put the monster truck wheels but i found that i can get into a skid you know in the smallest amount of space but I'm still not winning all the time, so I'm probably doing things wrong. Yeah, I found myself getting way more into Mario Kart than I thought I would, especially playing online and like being in the lead and then getting like red shelled and then green shelled like oh. immediately after that and it's just like raging out. It is amazing there can be so much rage in Mario Kart because it's so pretty <laughs> yes. and happy. Yes. And you will just be furious when you get hit five times a row well, like, in a row. The middle of the pack is the worst. Like if you're it like the in worst. sixth or seventh, like it's just item after item of just like destroying the back of the pack is right behind you and the back of the pack are the people who get all the the best best power ups ups. three red shells and that's why you can go like you can be in first the whole game you can get hit by a single shell and all of a sudden you're in 11th within the span of five seconds and i've got my three-year-old in my lap and i'm like trying to control myself but i'm just raging and my wife is like do you need to stop playing that game right now (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if there's a way to turn that off because it is sort of unfair I mean, if you're in first place, you're going to get a coin every single time. Yeah. yeah. Or a banana. Yeah. Anyways, we're dorks. <laughs> uh, last thing that I love about that. So the the Wii U has a controller that has a screen on it. So two two really cool things about that. One of them is that it adds a lot of interaction. My son, there's a horn. The main thing that's there is the horn button. And so whenever he's getting a little bit bored, I'm just like, hit the horn bit, buddy. And he like hits the horn really loud and he hears it and he laughs and he feels like he's helping me. That's cool. But there's been a time where my wife is watching TV or something like that and I really want to play or I don't want to be loud. And you can actually flip the the view that's on the Wii U controller and it shows you the actual screen, plug in your headphones, and all of a sudden it's basically like an oversized DS. That was brilliant. I cannot believe that is fully functional. I don't know if every game does that, but you can play an entire game, like an entire hours of games just on the controller. You can basically do that with any game. And the coolest thing about that is that's sort of like proprietary tech for nintendo like they're not using bluetooth that's why it's perfect like there's no uh there's no lag there's no nothing Mm -hmm. that's all like people don't give them enough credit for that it's all proprietary however they figured that out they nailed it because you never have an ounce of lag with that i mean if you ever played like first person shooters or something like that like i played a lot of first person shooters multiplayer land party kind of things in high school and you could just your eyes could squeeze, squeeze over like two degrees and you're seeing the other person's screen. If everybody had their Wii U controller, you literally wouldn't be able to see it. Like you could go halfway around the house. I don't know how far the reach is, but that's, I feel like there's a lot of potential there. So, all right, dudes, this was fun. Um, so anything else you guys want to talk about drop before we move on? Power slide. Okay. I got to work on my power, power slide. sliding. Work on the power, power sliding is good. I'm kidding. <laughs> it wasn't good before, but it's quite good now. You've grown young sensei. 